This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of Christ. Thank you, Brian. I, uh, those of you that prefer our nine o'clock style of church, first of all, we're working on it. Second of all, I often say in that service, uh, both when I lead it and when I'm sitting there, that I take the first deep breath of the day um, during the non-singing liturgical elements, and that happened today. Thank you, Brian, for leading us and meditating on Paul's words in Romans. And as you were uh, reading it, and there's an obvious overlap that I hope you see in the text, Jesus repeating himself, inspiring Deuteronomy, said, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Paul says it in passive language. You ever notice that? I've talked about it many times, but um, much of the New Testament is written in passive language, and it's not because they didn't understand how verb tenses work. It's because how. Follow me? Like, how, how can we renew our minds? We can't. Holy Spirit has to come and get us and in love begin the process. Okay, what then do I do to participate with the Holy Spirit in the renewal of my mind? Love God with your mind. And it's not only your mind. This is why, this is part of the reason I wanted to uh, cover loving God with all your mind last. It's also with your emotions and with your will. And with the part of you that's made in the image of God, spoke about that last week, but it also includes your mind. Have you ever taught uh, kids? Ever tried to teach three-year-olds? In the pandemic, one of my uh, pandemic responses was to do a story time with our kids on Zoom, meaning the kids in the church, for the first about 100 days. And I didn't do all of that. It was still sort of an overly energetic response, but one, because I care. And I I immediately remembered when my children were little, which is now even more interesting, um, and thought, oh my gosh, the people with little kids, we need to do something to help them. And I'm not very good at it. I'm good at reading a story. I even think I'm good at preaching and other things, and that's fine. I don't think I'm particularly good at teaching little kids. Jesus was, though. He told stories that you could read straight from your Bible that would make sense to a three-year-old. Read the parable in Matthew 13 of the treasure in the field to your three-year-old, and they'll understand it in part. And, and one of my favorite things about kids is um, they don't think abstractly. And sometimes you could really solve a problem if abstract thought is just 
separate from the equation, you know? Many of Jesus' stories immediately made sense to kids, which is part of the reason they loved being around him. He was also probably really fun and good at making balloon animals. That's not true. They didn't have balloons. But kids loved him. They flocked to him. That, that part's true. One of my kids uh, has never, as far as I can tell, fallen for a false dichotomy in the logical sense, you know? Like, when you give an either-or, um, oftentimes we imply something more strongly than is true in terms of logic, right? We imply that it must be one or the other and that all other options have been comprehensively exhausted. And one of my kids, if I ask her which cat she likes better, she never falls for it. I love that about children. And Jesus, the brilliant teacher, was able to teach kids. And his stories literally still work for them. It wasn't just children that he taught so well. He debated with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who we could compare today to the right and the left politically. Sadducees didn't believe there was a resurrection. Pharisees were quite strong about it. And listen, the Pharisees were not all bad. Nicodemus, we know so much more about God because of Nicodemus and his good questions, and he was there at the end. Joseph of Arimathea, played a very significant role at the end of Jesus' life, was a Pharisee. But there were other Pharisees that wanted to test Jesus. And I love this passage because most of the time that I hear someone say, or I read, they did this to test him, I'm like, ooh, this is not going to go well. And this went pretty well. Jesus was straightforward with them. So it wasn't just, these are supposed to be lawyers. I don't know if they actually look like lawyers. Jesus not only could teach children, he debated effectively and successfully with lawyers, not only for their benefits, but for the benefit of people listening and watching, and for you and for me. And by the way, let's be super clear about Pharisees and lawyers. Jesus loved them. Sometimes he answered their questions directly. Sometimes he answered a better question than the one they asked. If you go through the Gospels and pay attention to this would be a way of loving God with all your mind, frankly. If you go through the Gospels, paying attention to every time someone asks Jesus a question, you'll note that about half the time he answers the question directly and half the time he answers a different question. And it wasn't just kids and lawyers and Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and scribes and the learned ones. It was also blue-collar workers. At the time, that'd be farmers and shepherds. And Jesus didn't mock them. He taught in such a way that they understood. My favorite thing about lawyers and Pharisees is they push the metaphorical questions and problems of the world, and they explain the law. I, I got to talk with two lawyers a, few, a month ago after referencing Matthew 13, and both of the way their minds work, and they disagreed on the matter at hand, but both of the way that those two men's minds work helps me think about the Scriptures. Jesus also taught blue-collar workers really well. In my experience, blue-collar workers are the best problem-solvers in the room. Their intelligence is different in the same way that children can sometimes blow past a problem because of their childlike way of approaching things, in the same way that sometimes lawyer types and Pharisee types help us think about a question more thoroughly. Blue-collar types really can solve a problem. I did a wedding last year um, and the groom was uh, a blue-collar worker, and um, he came over to talk to me, and we were joking about a car that I was driving at the time, the, uh, uh, an old car that I was driving 
because I had left the lights on, and he had already gone and turned the lights off for me because he both knows me and knows that it's the knob lights, and so I was going to forget. And so we just laughed. Problem solver. And the reason that I bring that up is, first of all, people have different kinds of intelligences, but more importantly, Jesus taught all of them brilliantly. I mean, if you don't think, if you, if you read the parables of Jesus, you might think he wasn't a deep thinker. Go then to John 14 through 17. I mean, the high priestly, someday I'll preach a sermon on the high priestly prayer, and you almost have to go one verse at a time, as in per Sunday, to catch the richness of the depths of God's love, his transcendent eternal plan, experienced in real time. Jesus was brilliant. And the reason that I wanted to talk about that for, I don't know, five five minutes maybe, is because his brilliance flowed out of an active love for God and of God with his mind. One of the reasons that I referenced Jesus' questions is he listened. He listened to God in prayer. He listened to God through the scriptures. This is all part of the mystery of what it meant for him to take on flesh and for his um, divine, his, he, the fullness of his divinity to be veiled. I'm referencing Philippians 2. But he emptied himself theologically. That's called the kenosis. Talking about loving God with all your mind. You know, you can wrestle with that word a little bit, right? You guys are good with it? We're good, right? Part of how Jesus loved God with his mind during his earthly ministry, prior to that and after that, he's with God all the time in Trinitarian community and love. But when he was here on earth, he listened to God in prayer. He listened to God through the Old Testament that he knew exceptionally well. And he listened to others. How good of a listener are you? Years ago, uh, I heard a very interesting talk about blind spots, and I asked way too many people for some of my blind spots, and the reason I say too many is they all answered. (laughs) They kind of stung. And Dan Kerwin said to me, you're a good listener, but you're not as good of a listener as you think you are. Probably still true, though I hope I'm growing in it. Some of my better days, I actually write that as a note to myself, not that exactly, but something along the lines of, listen, before you talk, on a little post-it note. Are you good at listening to the text? These words were not written to us, but they were written for us. I'll give you a hint if you struggle with the scriptures. One of the ways to uh, unpack them more and more thoroughly is to consider, what did this sound like the first time it was read out loud? Who heard it first? And what would it have sounded like to them? Are you good at listening to the text? Are you good at listening to others? Every other human is part of this. One of the things that makes me so excited about this uh, sermon series, Kingdom Practices, is I don't... (laughs) they're They're not alone. Like, talking with someone about Jesus is just as spiritual as reading a book about him or reading his book about him. Are you good at listening to others? One of my favorite things about our new members class, if you're interested, we're, we're going to start another one pretty soon. We're not sure of the format, but if you're interested, let us know. Um, let me know. 
when we do the new members class, one of my favorite stories that Lynn Schoenhart sometimes tells, not always, she and Rick both just mix it up every single time. They tell a little bit more of one part and a little bit less of another. They don't even mean to do it. They just always tell it a little differently, which is fascinating for me. But one of my favorite stories that she tells is after becoming a follower of Christ, um, and that story is beautiful. I'll let her tell you sometime. She struggled with the Bible, and she asked the Holy Spirit, and it changed. The Bible suddenly made sense to her. I don't think right in that moment, but directly after she prayed. Have you prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to help you listen to the Holy Spirit as you interact with the text? Because that's one of the ways that we love God with our mind. One of the ways that we participate in the Holy Spirit's action, the Romans 12, 2 passage that Brian uh, led us in meditating on, is by reading and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to understand. You're complex. I think you know that. Some of you are like, no, I'm not. Simple. It's simple. In your simplicity, that's complex because you're a human. And if you're actually that simple, that's complex. And I think that's part of the reason that Jesus spoke to Moses this way in Deuteronomy. I think that's the reason Jesus answered the question this way. I think it's the reason we get to continue to grapple with humanly the implications of the gospel of Jesus and then respond accordingly with the kingdom practice of loving God with all of our mind. You know, what are you reading that's going to nudge you in this direction? Is it a devotional? Is it a work of theology? Is it the scriptures? You're trying to read the scriptures faster? Sometimes I try and read, sometimes I'll read the scriptures faster and notice things that I wouldn't notice if I'm going verse to verse with a highlighter or underlining. How do you like to study the scriptures? You have a Bible with a concordance in it. You have a Bible that doesn't have a concordance. I prefer non-concordances because they distract me. My eyes dart around. But I also need a concordance because one of the best ways to continue to unpack scripture is to study the other scriptures that that scripture is referencing, which is what a concordance does. That's not the only way. I wouldn't even say it's the best way, but it is part of the equation. How are you studying the scriptures? How are you going to lean into studying them this year? And some of you have a lot less energy for studying them than you did in 2019. Uh, me too. I'm in a book club with other pastors, and one of the reasons is to uh, essentially schedule into my week loving God with my mind in ways that are not intuitive to me. I'm sure that some of you think that because I'm a pastor, I intuitively want to study. It's not true. I commit to it partly because I want to, but I have to do it. What I would do naturally is just schedule meetings all day with you people, and then my sermons would be uh, less good. I'm not going to comment on how good they are. I'm just going to say they'd be less good left to my own devices. But because Jesus talked about this, Paul talks about it. Throughout the scriptures, we understand that part of being human is our mind. I have this long list of some of my favorite authors. But I'm not going to read it because I want to know who yours are. Who are your favorite authors about Jesus, the gospel, and the Bible? Jesus not only was brilliant and loved God with his mind, he invites us to follow him in loving him with his mind. 
And this is, this is, when I sat down to work on the sermon a couple of times, a few, I don't know, five times this week, most of the time I had trouble getting to an outline because I would just start writing. Because I can picture it. I can picture the however many of us, 200 of us, which looks like 50 to me, which has been one of my biggest complaint prayers. Lord, I can't see your church. It's just really challenging. I know she's yours, not mine, but I can't see her. And it makes it harder to pastor, help, do something. But when I picture the 200 of us, what if 1% less of the time we spent on diversion and Netflix and doom scrolling was shifted towards loving God with all of our mind? What would happen? What would it be like? And I don't mind that you doom scroll. I get the funniest screenshots from my wife, thanks to her doom scrolling. I don't mind Netflix. There are some terrific films and TV shows on Netflix. I think diversion is part of what's delightful about being human. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. But, that was louder than I meant for it to be, but what if we took one, five, ten percent of that time and devoted it to loving God with our mind? I think we'd be more at peace. I think our ability to resist temptation would be stronger. I think we would have more felt joy. Here's a question for you designed to inspire you and your love for God with all of your mind. What does it mean to be in Christ? If you read Paul's letters, that phrase comes up a lot. And in my opinion, any responsible theological student of, whether it be layperson, pastor, or someone with a terminal degree, they have wrestled with that. How about you? What do you think it means to be in Christ? If that's intimidating, let me say it this way. Go read Colossians and consider through the lens of Colossians. You could read Colossians in 10 minutes. Not a big, this is not a big ask. Read the book of Colossians and consider the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? And then talk with a friend about it. Text a friend from church. This, I think this would be so cool. Just frankly. Read Colossians. Consider what it means to be in Christ. Then text a friend from church and say, hey, would you read Colossians? And, and then you'll find out if they listen to the sermon, which I always think is entertaining. I don't ever worry about church attendance, literally, ever. Though most of you think when I call you, that's why I'm calling you. Um, and say, would you read Colossians? And then could we have a conversation about what it means, like daily, in our head and in our emotions and in our very being, to be in Christ? I think that'd be pretty cool. A number of years ago, um, I saw someone, do, you know, essentially doing like social media clickbait, right? If you do this one thing, you'll receive the peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit, like forever. It wasn't quite that bad, but pretty exaggerated. But I was intrigued. I was like, huh. And what he said was, read every book of the Bible 40 times. And I started reading Colossians over and over again. Because there are so many beautiful promises in Colossians. One of our elders, it's his favorite book for this reason. And I, I'm, I'm speaking way too practically. But the goal is not that you do what I'm talking about. The goal is for you to accept that we have kingdom practices in front of us 
that will give us a sense of what the Holy Spirit is already doing in us and connect us to the invisible kingdom that Jesus purchased for us that's in us, in our new heart, given to us. God the Father's love, the work of, the Holy, of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say it much more straightforwardly. You can pause and say out loud or in your mind, I love you, Jesus. And that's actually a move of mind and heart, which is emotions and will. And that's the image of God in you. That's a move of soul. One of the most profound proofs of the image of God in us is the choice of what to worship. So literally, if you pause, say, I love you, Jesus, you're following a metaphorical command, non-metaphorically. Your mind's engaged. Your soul is the one making the choice to do it. Hopefully your emotions and your will are involved and you're not just doing it because the pastor is encouraging you to do it. Why? Why? Why does Jesus teach so brilliantly? Love God with his mind and invite us to follow. It's for the restoration of the world. Why do I think it's worthwhile to focus on these kingdom practices? Why is this kind of a repetitive series? Because it's true. Don't forget, as we talk about kingdom practices, don't forget the foundation of them is truth. Historical, existential, for your life today. God exists. He created the world and called it good. It was subjected to curse through Adam and Eve's rejection of God's love. And over 500 people saw a risen Jesus and the world was turned upside down. Why would we learn to lean into loving God with our mind? Why would we continue to consider new ways to love him with our mind? Why would... to restore the world? Uh, Orthodox theologian, um, James Davidson Hunter, and then Shemin. Ryan, do you remember? Did you have to read that in seminary? For the life of the world. This is why we do all the things that we do as followers of Christ. For the life of the world. Remember Jesus in Acts chapter 1 is about to ascend into heaven and his disciples say, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? And Jesus says, no. He didn't say no directly. He was very, care- he was very gentle with them. You do this until I return. It's our opportunity to love God with our mind because that then propels us back into the world. First, it propels us to love for God. Then, into care for neighbor. The neighbors in your workplace, the neighbors on your block, the neighbors that you call cousin and brother and sister and mom and dad and child. Loving God with our mind 
frees us into the righteousness, joy, and peace of the kingdom. That's Romans 14, 17. And into the care for the world. Have you ever wondered why Israel is situated where it is, physically? It's because at the time that God rescued them from the nation of Egypt, that was the central hub, world trade, for that part of the world. I don't know what was going on in North America. I'm sure somebody does, but I don't. So God placed them there, commanded them to worship him, and care for one another and neighbors for the life of the world. Jesus repeats the command as an answer to an honest question from someone trying to test him, so from an enemy who Jesus still loved, for the same reason. We sing and we pray and we give back our money and gifts to the church and we study the scriptures and we converse about the scriptures for the life of the world. Because we are restoration agents. One of the most beautiful and honoring and humbling parts of the gospel of Jesus is not only that he pursues us in love regardless, not only that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not only that he has found us and likes us, all our eccentricities and faults, all that, and he invites us to love God with our mind because he knows far better than us, that that will propel us to continue to worship him with joy and then love the neighbors that he has put into our lives and restore small pieces of the world that will probably not be esteemed much by anyone around us, but are part of his cosmic redemption plan for the physical earth, for reconciliation of relationships, and even for the restoration of our own soul, heart, and mind. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, it is so humbling to me how differently you have made all of our minds. They are all roughly the same size. They are all capable of thousands and thousands of similar things, and yet... Each one of our minds are different. Out of love for you, Holy Spirit, would you teach us to to love you with our mind and therein be renewed the way that Paul wrote. Renew our minds, Holy Spirit, that we might love you with unabashed joy. Renew our minds, Jesus, that we might be gripped by your love. Renew our minds, Father, that we might love well the neighbors you've put into our life. Amen.